We're uh, continuing on the doctrine of hell. If you weren't here last week, we set out some cards to have people ask questions so that this week we would answer it. Originally, the name of uh, this message was going to be uh, questions answered about hell, but after reading your questions, I doubt my ability to answer them now. Uh, so, so instead, the title is just hard questions about hell because, because that's what we got. Um, I don't know if that's because I answered all the easy questions for you earlier, or y'all are just particularly theologically astute. Um, at first, when I looked in, in the basket, I thought, oh, we didn't get many questions. And then after reading them, I thought, oh, we've got way too many questions. Um, so uh, just to let you know, the, the, the questions are, are kind of deep, kind of involved, and we're probably not going to get through all of them today. So this is probably going to be a, a, a two-part series on hard questions about hell. Um, before we get into the actual questions, I, I just want to talk about some of the principles that we're going to be using as we answer the questions. Okay. And these are these are real simple, uh, but I think they're they're guiding principles that are going to keep me out of trouble, and hopefully will let you m- make you less mad at me when I say I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, first of all, it, what Scripture says stands supreme. Uh, it, it is it has the authority in all things concerning faith and practice. So as we answer these questions, I, I'm, I'm going to try and minimize w- what just my opinion or thoughts on these things are. But we're going to present, okay, well, what does Scripture actually have to say about this particular topic? How does it speak to it? A second principle that we're, we're going to try and apply as we go through this is we will not make clear what Scripture has not clearly revealed. Okay, and, and this is where a lot of Bible teachers get in trouble. There, there is something that is not clearly articulated or revealed in Scripture that they extrapolate out, that they uh, try and make clear for people. Uh, the third principle is, is the inverse of that, and that's we're not going to try and make blurry what Scripture has clearly leve- revealed. There's another tendency. If there's an answer we don't like or a description we don't like, we, we try and fudge it a little bit. We, we, we try and change it a little bit. Uh, and then a fourth principle, and, and this is a general principle that we're going to take into account as we answer these questions, is the progress of revelation. So when I say that, what I mean is that there are some things in the Old Testament that are less clearly revealed or sometimes even not revealed and then as, the, as you go forward in the progress of revelation, God reveals more and more about the topic or more and more about himself. And something that was blurry or less understood or mysterious in the Old Testament suddenly becomes clear or revealed in the New Testament. Uh, so, for a, a, in, in fact, almost the whole book of Acts centers around this principle because the Jews knew that at some point, God was going to bless the, the Gentiles through Abraham's seed. Now, most of them thought that the way in which God was going to do that was by incorporating Gentiles and taking them and making them into Jews so that they could have access to God. But then in the person and work of Jesus Christ, something different's revealed. 
it becomes clear that the way in which God is going to bless the Gentiles and the Jews is that both Jew and Gentile can have direct access to God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Okay, so in the Old Testament, you knew something was coming for the Gentiles, but you didn't know what, you didn't know how. And then as Scripture goes on, it reveres it more clearly. So those are some of the, the principles we're going to be using. I think of them kind of uh, when you go bowling and, and you want to stay out of the gutters, you put up the guardrails on the side. I think of these principles, those are the guardrails on the side. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great bowler, but it'll keep you out of the gutter. Okay, uh, I'm going to read you, to you the, the questions we got uh, as I said today, we're probably not going to get through all of them. We'll, we'll kind of roll and, and see uh, how far we'll get time permitting. And then next week, we'll finish them off. Uh, and if we have any time left, uh, that next week will be our last message on hell. I don't know if that makes you happy or disappointed, but uh, <laughs> next week we'll be closing out the series. We'll finish off these questions. And it, uh, with the time left next week, we'll be talking about, okay, what are some of the practical applications of this doctrine? Uh, we've been talking about it a lot. We, we've mentioned some of the ways, but really, what do we need to do in light of this doctrine, in light of this revealed truth in Scripture? Uh, so just to give you all a preview of what we're going through, I'll read you the five questions. I will warn you, some of you do not know what a question is. You need to go back to grammar school. So, so some of these, I had to interpret what the question was, so I, I hope I guessed correctly. All right. Uh, the first one we're going to be addressing tonight is what happens to babies or infants that die? Do they go to heaven or hell? Okay, now you all see why it's hard questions on this topic. Uh, second question, since all are born and need to be born again or go to hell, how to be sure you're going to heaven is important. Matthew 7.21 and 1 John 2.17 emphasize something you seldom hear. Again, y'all aren't great at questions. All right, number, number three. Did Christ experience eternal torment in hell before his resurrection and eventual ascension, seeing as he was both God and man? That's a great question, by the way. Uh, the fourth question is, what about the lukewarm? I know, but I want to talk about it more. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then the fifth and, and last, well, I take that back. We've, we've got some, we, I had a couple of people come up and ask questions to me today that we'll hopefully be able to cover next week. Uh, question five is, you focused on locality, heaven versus hell, and ignored the explicit language in all the text that speaks of life versus death. It's not ultimately a question of heaven versus hell, but life versus death. No wonder few can hear what you're saying and why you encounter difficulty when you try to explain how it is in keeping with God's character or serves his purposes to punish the human soul for eternity. All right. So these are the questions. Uh, I think the other one I got this week is uh, what is the difference between Sheol and hell? So we'll add, we'll add that to the list. As I said, these questions are really hard, and we're going to go through them really quickly. So this is probably going to be a really frustrating for you and for me. <laughs> uh, but we're going to do our best. So the first question is, what happens to babies or infants? Uh, you, you know, where do they go, heaven or hell? Uh, we announced a couple weeks in here. 
uh, that Jennifer's pregnant with twins. You know, what, what happens if one of them in the womb dies? What, what is their, their eternal destiny? Uh, there are a couple of options for this one, and I'm just going to warn you right out of the gate, you're probably not going to like my answer on this. Uh, option one, no babies go to heaven. So, uh, you know, for this, you have verses um, like Romans uh, 10.9. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or, or any of the other passages that, that talk about what's necessary for belief. You say, well, if a baby can't do that, they can't be saved. Because babies haven't believed in Jesus, they won't be saved. Okay, that's, that's one option. Option two, all babies go to heaven. It's kind of like the, the uh, movie, all dogs go to heaven. They just change the theology a little bit. Um, a passage, and I believe, well, we'll start with the, the less convincing. In Matthew nineteen fourteen, Jesus says this. He says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of heaven. That, that indicates there's, there's something in the nature of a child that is inherent to receiving the kingdom. Uh, the, the second one, and I think this is a, a key passage. In fact, why don't you all look there with me? We need to spend some time together in God's Word. 2 Samuel 12. Uh, this passage occurs after David is, has committed his sin with Bathsheba, uh, and she is pregnant with their first child. And as this is going on, one of the things David's attendants notice is that he is in a sackcloth and ashes. Uh, the, this child is sick. There's concern whether it's going to live and die. He's fasting. He's becoming you know, more and more depleted, and the child dies. And David's attendants are worried, okay, who's going to tell David? You know, If he's been this bad while the baby's alive, what's going to happen when he finds out? that the baby is dead. 2 Samuel 12, let's look at verses 22 and 23. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Okay, very interesting passage because after the child dies, David stops mourning. So he he stops fasting as he was. And he he goes and eats for the first time. And and the, the people around him are a little bit surprised by this. What's his answer? He says, hey, while he was alive, there was hope that the Lord might spare him. Now that he's dead, do you know what? He can't come back to me, but I'm going to go to him. And and the fact that David has some sort of hope or comfort in the fact that he is going to where his child is kind of gives us an implication or indication that there's some sort of hope for infants who pass away. Uh, Now, both these together don't give us a, a ton of evidence. And, and in fact, I don't think they necessarily give us evidence that all children go to heaven. Because it, this is just one example we have from one person in the Old Testament who believes that his child may be living again. So there's also a, a third option. 
that occurs, and this is some babies go to heaven. Now, this will kind of uh, this is kind of fleshed out in different ways based on people's theology. Uh, so, if if you're if you're a Calvinist, you would say that the elect babies go to heaven. Uh, if you're Arminian, maybe you might say uh, the babies that God foreknew that might have belief go to heaven, or, or something along those lines. Again, for this passage, uh, the same passages that were used in the all babies go to heaven passage are used again. So David's passage about his child, Jesus' statement about let the little children come to me are, are kind of the evidence-based passages that are used. There's also passages about God's predestination that are used. So, so listen to Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed, has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, oh, what's that passage talking about? It's talking about God predestining us. When? Before the foundation of the world. Guess what? That's before you and I were born. That's before you and I existed. That's before you and I had done anything. And what does... He do that on. He bases it on his sovereign grace. Um, he, now the the conclusions of these views. You know which, which one's right, which one holds the most merit. Um, I don't know exactly. <laughs> I told you this would be disappointing. Uh, there's reasons and passages that give us hope, but ultimately we have to trust God on the issue. Uh, Romans nine fifteen. Um, which read that in context when you have time. Read Romans 9.15. So God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And in that, we have to trust that God is good in whatever he decides. We have to recognize that whatever God's ultimate decision is, that he is far more holy than I am. He is far more righteous than I am. He is far more just than I. He is far more loving than I. And he has done far more for sinners than I. We should trust his decision and his determination on it. God's mercy is unobligated and sovereign in the distribution of his salvation. So that's my answer. That's just a long way of saying I don't know, isn't it? (laughs) Um, And by the way, there are, I'm going to mention this is a little tangential. This is getting a little out of what Scripture says and more into what I think. So take it with a large pinch of salt. But there are certain things that I believe Scripture leaves ambiguous intentionally because of the propensity for us to misapply Scripture. You know, one thing we didn't mention in this is a lot of the people that believe all babies are saved, and they, there's a certain point where they have to say, well, at this point, once they are no longer a baby or an infant or a young man or a young woman, uh, it, at this point, it kind of switches off. They call it an age of accountability. 
And it's kind of like they're this under this umbrella of grace. Once they reach a first certain age or stage, all of a sudden they're under judgment. Now, if a doctrine like that exists, you could make a strong case for infanticide. You, do you get what I'm saying? In order to protect the child's eternal life, you kill them before they get to the age or the point in which they would receive God's judgment. Okay? So, you know, I think there are certain doctrines that are left ambiguous for, for good reasons. Um, as I said, that's just one of my own thoughts tangentially. We have to trust God on this issue, that what he decides and what he wills is good. All right, so that's the first question. What happens to babies or infants? Do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? We don't know. We just got to trust God. Secondly, the second question. Uh, since we are born and in need to be born again or go to hell, how to be sure you're going to heaven is important. Matthew 7.21 and 1 John 2.17 emphasize something you seldom hear. Great question. Wait, no, that's not a question. All right. Let's try and change it into a question. All right. Since all are born and need to be born again or go to hell, is how to be sure you're going to heaven important? Yes. All right. That was, that was a good one. All right. Matthew 17.21 and 1 John 2.17 emphasize something you help. So do 1 John's, sorry, do Matthew 7.21 and 1 John 2.17 emphasize something you seldom hear? Yes. Uh, these passages emphasize that there is a connection between salvation and obedience. Obedience is always the fruit of the saved. Uh, but uh, let's, let's look at one of these passages together. Let's look at 1 John 2.17. I think today is drinking from a fire hose day. We're just jumping around, answering hard questions, hardly taking time to breathe. 1 John 2.17. All right, First uh, John 2, verse 17 says this, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, isn't that an interesting passage? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Also, the world is passing away along with its desires. This comes in, in as Paul, er, sorry, as John is exhorting believers to not pursue the desires of the flesh, but instead to love God as well as the saints. Uh, now, one of the things uh, I've, I've said is obedience is always the fruit of the saved. One of the things we have to remember that. Uh, obedience is not what saves us, at least not our obedience. It is the obedience of Christ that saves us. So how can he say this? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. That sounds like obeying the will of God determines our eternal de destiny. I would say this. 1 John 2.17 must be interpreted in light of 1 John 3.23. Now, what does 1 John 3.23 do? 1 John 3.23 talks about what is the commandment of God. 
and it's a singular when he talks about commandment of God. So the will of God is to obey the God, to, to obey His commandments. Let's look what John believes uh, the ultimate or the penultimate command of God is. First uh, John three twenty three. Just flip over a little bit. And this is His commandment. Notice how that's singular. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus, and love one another just as He has commanded us. In the book of 1 John, this is what doing the will of God looks like. Believing God and loving one another. That is a sign that you are saved. People that do not have those characteristics and those traits in the book of John, are not characterized as believers. They are characterized as people who are still living in the flesh according to the desires of the world. Okay? So do you all see the connection there between doing the will of God and your eternal destiny? It's to believe on God. All right. Um, So that's question, question number two. Uh, we we didn't emphasize salvation a whole lot in this series, um, and and there's some reason for that. Number one is beyond the scope of this study, and one of the things we I really try to emphasize in, in in studying the doctrine of hell is this is what Christ saves us from. This is what Christ saves us from, in order that we hopefully have a greater appreciation for what Christ has done for us. Another reason is I feel like there's a lot more that's said by a lot smarter people than me on the doctrine of salvation. More often, you you hear a lot more about that, what we're saved for rather than what we're saved from. So we've really been focusing on what we're saved from in this series and and haven't touched a lot on the doctrine of salvation. Um, Question number three. This 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 is a good one. This is a complicated one. Did Christ experience eternal torment in hell before his resurrection and eventual ascension, seeing as he was both God and man. Now, this person's smart. They asked a question, but seeing the second half of that question gives me an indication that I think the person who wrote this knows the answer. Uh, it, It mentions Jesus being both God and man. And one of the things we need to understand as we study the person and the work of Jesus Christ is that because Jesus was man, his sacrifice was fitting for man. But because Jesus was God, his sacrifice was sufficient for men. Now, um, one of the things, I think we mentioned this early on, maybe in the second or third message on hell, was the way in which the Gospels describe hell. Uh, particularly in, in the book of Matthew, uh, it describes hell in, in a very in very specific ways. Uh, turn with me. We're we're like having sword drills here. Um, Joe's, Joe works at Awana, so he's prepared for this. Turn with me to Matthew eight, eleven through twelve. We're going to look at a couple passages in Matthew as we answer this question because I think it provides better clarity. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. 
I hope I wrote down the right passage. Uh, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The judgment of God in this passage is described as being thrown into outer what? Darkness. And it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. When we covered these passages, we talked about how weeping was a sign of sorrow and gnashing of teeth was a sign of continued rebellion and anger. Okay, so outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Let's look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. As I said, we're going to jump a lot through Matthew, uh, but in order to cover a question like this, we've got to look at several different passages. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare, from, uh, declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the judgment there that's giving? It's relational. It's spatial. What does he say to them? Depart from me. And that that that's, has been a key element in our whole discussion. I think it's up behind me. This idea that the primary thing that is awful in hell is that we are absent from the presence of the Lord. Uh, if, if there is... One thing I could describe as the difference between heaven and hell is the presence of the Lord. If, if, you, if I had to narrow it down to just one thing, that's the one thing I'd give you. The difference between heaven and hell is the presence of the Lord. The worst condemnation that's given is saying, depart from me. So, uh, now to, and by the way, this depart from me uh, it occurs in a lot of other parables. We don't have time, in fact, to look at all the parables and stories about hell even just in the book of Matthew where it talks about casting people out. It's casting people out of kingdoms, casting tenants out of vineyards. You know, there's all this casting out, casting servants out, casting all sorts of people out. And then there's always this idea of a place of darkness. Now, if those are two key characteristics, that is darkness and being cast out from the presence of God, let's look at Matthew 27. We're going to be in Matthew 27, 45. I want you to listen to the way in which Matthew describes Jesus' experience on the cross. Now, from the sixth hour, that's, that's noon, that's the middle of the day. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now in Matthew, 
what was the judgment of God characterized by? Darkness and being cast out of the presence of God. Now, it's, it's also kind of important they say the sixth hour. That's noon. That's middle of the day. And it, it says darkness is covering the, the area around Calvary. Do you think that God is trying to communicate something here? It's middle of the day, pitch dark. Jesus cries out. What does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, the, the question asked, did Christ experience eternal torment in hell before his resurrection and eventual ascension? This is indicating that Christ, while he was on the cross, experienced separation and for the first time, his father's divine wrath against unrighteousness. Another interesting thing, uh, we don't have time, as I say, to look at all these passages, is, but John 19 tells us something that Jesus says on the cross. He says, it is finished. Now, that, that's an interesting point at which to say it is finished, isn't it? As before his physical death, and as before his, you know, resurrection, I, you know, I would ex- be expecting after Christ resurrects, comes back and says, it is finished. You know, that's, no, he, he says it while he's on the cross, it is finished. What, what is he referring to there? Well, Hebrews 2, 9, we, we got to go a lot of passages. We got to have a lot of scripture to, to work this out. Hebrews 2, 9 says that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now, when we, we, we say death, we have to uh, ask what type of death is he talking about? In, in Revelation, it says that the lake of fire is the second death. And that is our, the ultimate destination of those who do not have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. So Jesus on the cross tastes death, is separated from the felt presence of God and his grace, experiences the torment of the wrath of God. He drinks deep from the cup of God's wrath in order that you and I might save, be saved. Now, uh, one point I want to make. This question is about, uh, this, this question is about time, but to a certain extent, it's also about extent. You know, because time is a degree of extent. So did Jesus really experience, how can Jesus in the three hours on the cross experience all of damnation when it takes, it would take somebody like us all of eternity to experience that? Uh, First of all, uh, when we're talking about degree, what Christ experiences on the cross is far worse than anything we can experience, including hell. Now, the, the reason for that is because for Christ, separation from the presence of God is far worse than it would be for any of us because of who he is and his relationship to God the Father. All right? I, I mean, we, we all intrinsically know this. How close you are, how good of a relationship you have with somebody is going to determine how painful it is to be separated from them. 
when when my wife and I were dating and I was in Dallas and she was here in Memphis, we spent a lot of gas money driving between those two cities. Now, now why is that? Because we wanted to be with each other and being apart was painful and difficult. Uh, and now as a part of my job, I bury people. And I see people that have been married for 30, 40, 50 years. And they lose a loved one. I just think, I can't imagine that type of separation. You know, I've, been, I've been married seven years. It's like that, that's a drop in the bucket to some of these people. I, I can't know what they're experiencing because I haven't experienced that type of love and unity over years growing closer and closer together. Imagine the Son of God who has always done what has pleased His Father from eternity past to eternity future, who is righteous in all His thoughts, His actions, His intentions, who has always been joined with Him and experienced His pleasure, all of a sudden has the wrath of God against all sin, all unrighteousness, all unholiness poured out against Him. You and I will never know the difference or degree of pain He experienced on the cross because we've never been that close to God. The question is about time, but one thing I want you to know that what Christ experienced on the cross is far more excruciating than anything any other being could ever experience. Uh, Back to the question, was it eternal torment in hell? And if so, how could that be? How how come he could rise three days later? Uh, The question is also answered. The answer to the question is in the question, seeing as he was both God and man. Finite beings take an infinite amount of time to experience an eternity. An infinite God who existed before time existed. Do you ever think about that? Before the beginning, he was. Time is not something that controls him. Time is something he controls. An infinite God experiences time differently than we can. This experience of separation from God the Father and his wrath upon the eternal Son of God is something that occurred on the cross. Now, I don't think we can adequately adequately explain it or understand it. But I'm sure glad it worked. (laughs) I'm sure glad that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for me. That Christ's sacrifice saves me from the wrath of God. That Christ's sacrifice allows me, instead of experiencing separation from God and punishment for my sin, allows me to experience fellowship, adoption as a son of God, and to experience God's good pleasure. I think that's a good breaking point before we get into the last two questions. Uh, Thank you all so much for answering really hard questions that are difficult for me to answer. I may not ever have you all give you all the opportunity to do that again. But I I hope as we go through this, it's edifying to you to know what Christ has been through in order to save us. Your, Your doctrine of hell is intrinsically tied to how much you value Jesus Christ. 
Because it's intrinsically tied to what He has done for you. What has Christ saved you from? He has saved you from eternal damnation. He has saved you from God's righteous wrath against sin. How? By taking it upon Himself on the cross. All praise and honor and glory be to Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Amen.